you flip through music podcasts like you would the dollar bins of your local record shop, hoping to stumble upon that rare pressing or super under-the-radar classic? Well, dig no further. Vinyl Emergency is where musicians, everyday album collectors, and those who design, release, or otherwise celebrate vinyl records come to share their stories about how this influential medium has shaped their lives and careers. I'm your host, Jim Hankey, and you can join me and a new guest every other Tuesday as we take you through LP artwork that has stood the test of time, our favorite neighborhood record stores, the first albums we ever bought. The tangible object of a vinyl record can spark so many intangible memories, and that's what Vinyl Emergency aims to capture and share with you. Past episodes have featured interviews with Roseanne Cash, Hosier, Creed Bratton from NBC's The Office, members of Foo Fighters, Wilco, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and Run DMC not to mention label owners, record pressers, and more within today's exploding vinyl community. You don't need to be a longtime record collector to enjoy or keep up with our conversations, but I guarantee you'll learn something new whenever you listen. Subscribe to Vinyl Emergency however you get podcasts, and follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Vinyl Emergency. Let's face it. Having a lawn is awesome. Maintaining it, not so much. It gets tiresome and expensive, and you should be enjoying it as opposed to constantly mowing it. That's where Sinlawn comes in. Sinlawn is environmentally friendly. There's no watering, no use of pesticide products, no mowing. It's very low maintenance, and you save money. Sinlaw uses bio-based ingredients such as soy and sugarcane. It's made in the USA in the state of Georgia. They're the largest manufacturer and installer of synthetic grass, and they have USDA bio-based certification. It's the safest and cleanest turf available, great for kids and pets. You get no muddy shoes, socks, or paws. Professional and certified distributors and installers nationwide. You get a premium quality product, which is highly durable and UV stabilized. You get your free time back. You can enjoy your yard instead of working to maintain it. And you can have it in your yard where grass will not grow. It's green all year. It's really great for residential homes, playgrounds, roofs, agility, golf. You want a golf hole in your backyard and many more projects. So please visit sinlawn.com slash beyond. That's S-Y-N-L-A-W-N.com slash beyond. Get along you can be proud of all the time. Be proud of your neighborhood. Don't be that one guy in your neighborhood with the brown lawn who the neighbors gossip about over tea. Or even better, up your short game in a major way. Your golf buddies and your neighbors will thank you. Sin long. Hey folks, I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. You are tuned in to episode 104 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast which, generally speaking, Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of getting the listener to listen to other bands. These are usually not jam bands. Because we love Fish, we are Fish fans. Sometimes Fish fans have a tendency to get a bit myopic. 
especially in quarantine and when they're out in public with a mask, as you should be. So, we are trying to get them to go beyond the pond, listen to some other bands, some other music, some other things that we think you will like. This is a unique episode in which we uh, have a special guest with us tonight. We are joined this evening by our good friend, uh, co-host of the HF Pod and Osiris Podcast producer extraordinaire, Matt Dwyer. Matt, welcome to Beyond the Pond. Thank you so much. Hey guys, thanks for uh, having me and giving me a, a soapbox to, to jump up on here <laughs> on the show this week. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, man. We are uh, we are talking about a subject that I, I can't believe it's taken us over 100 episodes to get here. I think it's somewhat of a, of a crime against this podcast, but I'm really glad that we're here at this point in time. Uh, we are talking about the history of Genesis and we are talking about the larger connections of the band Genesis to the inception of Fish and Fish's larger career, especially in the early part of their career. And um, Matt has really come up with some great uh, thoughts here in terms of uh, fusing us through the entire history of Genesis and really connecting it to the band Two Fish and Two Fish's history, as well as we've got a uh, cool little surprise here in terms of some insights into it. So I'm looking really, I'm looking forward to this episode, guys. Yeah, me too. I mean, I've been listening to, uh, basically started listening to Genesis in earnest when I was 11 years old, and I've kept on, kept on ever since. And that was kind of one of the reasons I got in the fish in the first place. They said, oh, wow, this like young, awesome band from Burlington, Vermont kind of sounds a lot like Genesis, but they're affiliated with the Grateful Dead. That's where I come in. So some of the themes that we're going to explore in this episode include In the Beginning... There is no fish. Boundary pushing within wide ranging compositions and top five musical crimes perpetuated by Genesis in the 80s and 90s. Go. Subquestion. Is it in fact unfair to criticize a formerly great artist for their latter day sins? Is it better to burn out or fade away? That's our high fidelity reference and you'll see how it factors into the show. And on that note, let's get to some Genesis. So as we noted here at the top, and as you guys are going to hear over the course of this episode, um, Fish's influence, Fish has been influenced by a number of bands, but as Trey said uh, in March of 2010 at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, perhaps the band would not exist without the band Genesis and the music that they made. Um, So we brought Matt on here to talk through this. Matt... Tell us kind of about the origins of why we wanted to have this conversation here and kind of dive us in here in terms of why we should listen to Genesis. 
Yeah. So um, that's a good question. I, when I was getting into fish in like 1999, 2000 era, I had been a fan of the band Genesis since I was a little kid. Um, Among my earliest musical memories are my parents playing the album Invisible Touch uh, like Mm. crazy around the house and in the car. And of course it was kind of ubiquitous, you know, um, back then. Um, But really that period, you know, people that were young or not born then may not realize like that period period of like the mid eighties through, um, the early nineties, Genesis was huge. They were a huge band. I mean, like it says something that Phil Collins was the guy who at Live Aid, you know, played in both London and Philly and like took the Concord between so that he could make it to both shows. Like that's how big Phil Collins was at that point. But, um, I, when I was a teenager, I eventually kind of worked my way back through the back catalog of the band. I had learned that Peter Gabriel was originally a member of the band and that kind of blew my mind because I was a big Peter Gabriel fan too. And, um, a lot of that stuff was not well known by, you know, my peers. Um, people didn't know that all that, that seventies Genesis stuff. When I started to get into fish, it seemed very obvious to me that that band and particularly the early stuff was an influence on fish's sound and probably some of the songwriting. And so I was very surprised as I kind of ingrained myself into the community and was going to shows and interacting with people on the internet and stuff that in fact, what I've discovered is that most fish fans don't listen to Genesis. They don't really acknowledge that link, um, that much. And usually when you bring it up with people, they kind of blow you off like, Oh yeah, 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 whatever. Invisible touch, bring up pop stuff and are kind of like, yeah, no, that's not for me. And I've had this conversation a million times of like, no, seriously, you, you, I can give you a list of songs you need to go back and listen to. Um, and you'll kind of get the link. And I was kind of driving me crazy for a long, time. And I got to the point where I was like, well, maybe I am just making this up. And there was a couple things that happened. Um, one was that there was a, I think it was a guitar world interview with Trey back in the early two thousands where he made reference to taking bong hits and listening to the lamb lies down on Broadway as being like the soundtrack (laughs) of his, his teenage years. Um, and then you get to 2010 and not only is fish selected as the band to play Genesis songs at the rock and roll hall of fame induction when Genesis is inducted, but Trey is selected to give the speech and in his speech literally says without Genesis, there is no fish. Right. So I'm thinking after this point, like, Oh, we're going to be on, you know, a tour this summer and people are going to be requesting watcher of the sky. And people are going to be like, you know, blast and firth of fifth out of their car stereos and stuff. And still <laughs> After that, even after uh, Trey said that, people still would like just not want to have it. So finally, like a couple of years ago when um, I met Tom Marshall for the first time and over the course of like hanging out with him a bunch of times um, doing all of this Osiris stuff that we do, I sort of I don't pester him about song lyrics but one thing I do pester him about a lot of time is like Genesis. And I'll say like, yeah, listen, you, you and Trey listen, listen to this stuff like a lot when you were kids. And like he, he brought it up. He said, oh yeah, you know, like they were my favorite band at one point and we listened to them a lot and stuff. So 
all of that evidence lined up, I thought that this show was a good opportunity for us to educate people uh, about that connection and then play some choice cuts and kind of walk them through the history of this band that, in my opinion, uh, people should know more about. So I guess it's kind of like a reverse beyond the pond, right? It's like, uh, here's fish stuff that is like coming from their, their influences uh, from, from way mm. back. Well, I've spent a lot of time in the playlist that you made for us <clears throat> about two months ago that uh, dove through the entirety of Genesis. That I think we're going to share with all of our listeners when we're finished with this episode and especially the stuff in the 70s with Gabriel listening to it with the perspective of this influence where Trey was going from a songwriting standpoint and where Tom was going from a lyricist standpoint it's all so clear. Like the song Supper's Ready more than anything else. I listened to that in depth for probably the first time earlier this year and it just blew me away. I was like, this is everything that I look for in Fish in their compositions just 10, 15 years earlier uh, and slightly more British. I would say significantly more British, especially Supper's <laughs> Ready. Yeah, when I first heard the Game Hen suite, I thought, okay, this is extremely Genesis. All you need is like Peter Gabriel dressed in like a costume, acting out the roles of like Tila and like Colonel Forbin <laughs> and all that. I mean, Game Henge in a way is almost kind of like a more like cartoony version of like Genesis, but kind of the earlier trade compositions that are very multifaceted in several parts, even stuff. That's divided up like, I don't know, like Ariba or Divided Sky. I mean, I guess you can also point to mid-70s Zappa as being a, a big inflection point. But in terms of the whimsy of Fish and the more like mystical elements, definitely Gabriel era Genesis. The Collins era, as we'll get to, not quite as much. But at the same time, maybe superficially, as Genesis got to the 80s and became more poppy and more digestible maybe you can say some of Trey's writing in 3.0 kind of points the way in the sense of being um, a little more simple. I think you made an important point there and we'll kind of touch on this a little bit I don't want to dive too much into it but um in terms of the prog rock influence, I mean, I think Genesis is just one leg of that stool. Um, there's a sure. couple of other bands that are at, so critical. Um, yes is another one. I mean, I think, you know, to get back to the, my f early years listening to fish, I, I remember kind of saying to somebody, it's like, if you took Genesis, yes. And King Crimson and threw them in a blender, <laughs> you get fish. Right. I mean, it's like, there's other, there's, you know, Genesis stuff that I listen to that I'm like, Oh yeah, this sounds like Trey could be playing this, but then there's yes albums and songs that I put on that I'm like, oh yeah, I can just see the band playing this in, you know, MSG or something like that. So, um, but I think this is the one area that probably people don't pay as much attention to as, as some of the other influences, those guys, Zappa, and of course, you know, the dead and, and some other bands. I think, um, Tom told us a while ago, the King Crimson band from I think like 1981, the discipline album. I mean, that's the record where you have, like, Tony Levin on bass guitar, who was Peter Gabriel's bass player, Bill Bruford on drums, who was, like, Genesis' drummer for, like, a little Tony bit. Them, yeah. And you had Adrian Ballou holding down the vocals and guitar, who was in the Talking Heads. So I think he went to go see um, King Crimson, I think, at, like, the McCarter Theater at Princeton, and he said it was just like a fantasy because it was, like, one person from all of their favorite bands, like, in one band with Robert Fripp. 
So let's talk uh, kind of in depth here about the Fish Genesis connection. Where, Matt, did you hear kind of clear parallels in terms of Fish to Genesis? Yeah, there's um, there's some specific examples we've got here. The one thing I'll say before getting into those, I I think for me it's more like an overarching thing, like moments that I'll hear in jams, or sure. also like if like I mentioned a, a moment ago, like it, sometimes I put on Genesis songs and it's like, oh, this could be a fish song, like this sounds like something that they would do or something that they would play. Um, but a couple of things that you can look at if you really want to get into that example, um, a great one is that came up recently. I know Dave. You and I talked about this. At, I, th I think it was the night that um, uh, Sigma Oasis debuted, yeah, which was. is that the the end of Thread sounds remarkably like Apocalypse mm. in 9-8, which is the closing section of Supper's Ready. Um, it's this odd meter, just staccato stabs, kind of throws you off your game a little bit, makes you a little bit wobbly. The difference being that Supper's Ready resolves to this sort of beautiful coda that brings back the the intro to the song whereas thread just stops uh and it's pretty nut um and that's that's one that i had asked tom about if there was like a specific influence he didn't he, he wasn't aware of it when they were writing that song but as soon as i brought that up he said oh yeah you're absolutely right that's there was probably <laughs> some suppers ready in our heads when we were when we were writing that um
Another one was in the cage, and this is where I think specifically lyrically, um, rather than musically, I would look at uh, the connection between Tom and Peter Gabriel, who he has said is one of his favorite songwriters. Um, in the cage and the song Maze have very similar kind of um, uh, themes of um, uh you know, somebody being trapped in a situation and trying to get out. The interesting thing then is that there is also a musical um, comparison as well um, in that it's a very, very dark song that eventually resolves it into this jam section where it actually kind of becomes like a, an organ driven gospel song. Um, and you can hear that about two thirds of the way through the song in the cage. Um, that would also later become like a big, big, um, a highlight of their shows for years to come. They played the song uh, in the cage pretty much every show throughout, you know, the, the late seventies and the eighties. Um, so that's another example that we should, um, we should listen to a little bit of as well.
So the, the third example that I had is more on Trey's playing, and I don't know that um, you see a ton of this through, throughout um, because uh, Steve Hackett is a very, very um, specifically individual guitarist. But um, something that I noticed first in uh, a really good example of, of it is in the song Firth of Fifth, Steve Hackett um, would do a lot of kind of volume swells, and he mm. actually um, in the 70s used to sit in a chair for a good portion of the show so that he could have a volume pedal that he would like do swells with. Um, I was listening to uh, a version of Esther recently and realized that Trey does that same kind of thing, swelling the notes in his composed solo. Um, and then was actually really surprised last week when we saw that 1989 dinner in a movie show uh, mm -hmm. that during I Am Hydrogen, he was doing the same thing. Um, and he didn't really do that uh, after that era of the band. But um, I think between Steve Hackett and maybe there's a little bit of um, some Robert Fripp in there, um, but like playing those long sustained notes that he kind of swells in with the, the volume is um, probably something he picked up from those guys.
One thing I was thinking watching that particular dinner and movie and watching some Genesis YouTubes over the last couple of weeks is kind of the combination of Gabriel's theatrics, but Phil Collins' sense of humor when they played, when they were live, you could see that kind of fused in Trey in a lot of ways. Like there were tramps in what, like five different songs in the 89 dinner and a movie. <laughs> Plus Trey is just, you know, in Iculus is like already telling inside jokes with the crowd, half of whom probably just came into the bar on a Monday night and don't know who they're seeing. Um, so like seeing that presentation, like there was a clear connection for me, which was really cool beyond just the plane. Yeah. And one thing I just thought of, I don't know that this is necessarily like a direct influence, but um, just kind of a funny thing. Uh, in the early days when Gabriel was in the band, um, Phil Collins was actually kind of like a comedic foil for him sometimes yeah. when he was telling his stories in the way that like Fishman is sort of like the comic relief of the band <laughs> today. And they even kind of uh, look somewhat alike, um, right. <laughs> which is kind of funny. But uh, so the, um, the next example, and this is one that comes from... Um, um, Tom Marshall, uh, I had asked him about um, some of these connections, and he brought up the song Never, uh, which is kind of a rarity. Um, it's a song that appears on Trampled by Lambs and Pecked by the Doves. Um, Fish did record it in 1998 for the story of the ghost, but it didn't make the cut. Um, they played it that year one time. It's a it's a one-timer um, at the, uh, the Bridge School Benefit Acoustic. Um, and then it kind of went into Neverland, uh, and it returned on Trey's Paper Wheels, uh, album, but with a different arrangement. Um, but that original version of Never from Trampled by Lambs and Pecked by the Doves sounds very, very similar to, um, uh, an early Genesis song called Stagnation, um, and also parts of, uh, Supper's Ready and the kind of the lead in track Horizon, uh, uh, Horizons, um, uh, so that's, that's one that, um, even, you know, Tom, when I talked to him kind of called out as a, as a specific, um, reference. It doesn't have to mention Always is the measure of how long time's been around Got you for a while 
example I think we should talk about um, is the song, which is one of my all-time favorite Genesis songs, um, The Cinema Show, um, which I think is one of these songs that the the instrumental passage in this song, which kind of takes up the second, you know, two-thirds of or so of the song, which is very much driven by a synthesizer solo. Um, it's something that I listen to and I go, this could be fish. Fish could be playing this. They would probably be improvising it, but this could be from a fish song, which leads me to wonder, um, with some of these sonic inspirations, I wonder if Paige is a Genesis fan too. Um, given that so much of this, these sounds are dominated by Tony Banks. Um, I, I guess that's a good question, but this is another area where sonically I hear a, a lot of, uh, Genesis and the blueprint of fish. Just to kind of throw it back to episode 101, Phil is Collins is really playing some breakbeats in that part of Cinema Show too. He is yeah. a he is a hell of a ghost note there. Yeah, da 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 part is really impressive. But it's funny you mentioned as if Paige is a Genesis fan. I think out of all the members of Fish, Paige's influences like no one really knows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good like point. He's played he's played with the meters, he's played, you know, everything he's done with Vita Blue is so different from what the other members have done. Um I yeah, I guess I It's like we don't, don't know what Paige was doing like like bong hits in high school too. <laughs> I think he's he's talked about being a huge Elton John fan. Um but I don't know I much that. Okay. much past that. Um and in fact, I think believe his piano tech now used to be Elton John's guy. Um, Interesting. But yeah, but you're absolutely right. Other than that, I don't know that we've had much of a window into the stuff that, that Paige uh, kind of came, grew up listening to. Paige, you're welcome to come on Beyond the Pond anytime, buddy. <laughs> Matt, I know you sat down recently with Tom to talk a bit about um, 
the influences of Genesis on Fish and kind of his thoughts at this point in time, looking back at listening to the, to their albums, listening to like lamb lies down when they were younger. Um, should we play a little bit of that here before we get settled? I, I think it'll offer some good context for listeners. Yeah, I think this is good. You know, once again, just to hear it from the horse's mouth, um, as if there, you know, we didn't have enough evidence already, this will kind of, you know, hopefully solidify it for you that this is a band that if you're a fish fan, you should probably care about. Okay, Tom, um, we're here talking about a a topic that I've brought up with you several times uh, when we have hung out in person, and that is uh, a band that I know you're very fond of, and that's the band Genesis. And uh, as we were explaining to the audience here in the intro um, for this episode, um, there's a lot of, uh, I've been kind of confused and and in wonder about why more fish fans are not into genesis given the heavy what seems to me to be heavy obvious influence um on on their style and some of the songwriting and stuff like that so i wanted to get a little bit of background perspective from you we've heard directly from trey uh, even in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony, the, the, the speech that he did for Genesis about the, the kind of direct link and influence um, from his perspective. But kind of if we go back to, to those days, um, when did you first kind of become a fan of, uh, of the band um, during the, the 70s? Well, hi, Matt, and hi, Brian and Dave again. Uh, good to be virtually connected to all of you guys. Um, so Genesis... Really, I guess they kind of ended in 1975, at least in the incarnation that I was my favorite when Peter Gabriel was the main singer. Um, but as far as discovering them, because in 1975 I was 12, <laughs> um, I don't think I really started chilling out with Genesis like on my dad's stereo until like maybe around 1980. Or something like that with Trey in my basement and my friend Mark Daubert, and uh, we just and and David Abraham is big time and like Dave would try to figure out how to play um, Steve Hackett's guitar parts, and meanwhile I was freaking out over Peter Gabriel's lyrics, and Trey loved the whole package, including like the the classical aspect to a lot of Genesis, and and it was just like. There's a band that had it all in terms of depth for all of us. Like you could always discover more and be amazed. I was also a keyboardist at the time, and Tony Banks was one of my favorite, favorite keyboardists. Right, right. So you mentioned that, you know, this was something that you and Trey and your other friends uh, had kind of bonded over. Do you remember like who kind of brought them to the foray in, in terms of your your group of friends? That's a great question. I do think that we might have gotten into them backwards because I remember being at a Peter Gabriel show 
with Trey. So I'm going to, I'm going to credit Trey. Um, we went to see Peter Gabriel with, uh, Trey and Peter Catoni somewhere in New York. And it's one of those peers or something like that. And it was an incredible show. And Tony Levin was on bass and, uh, you know, we had seen King Crimson with Tony Levin. So it was like, just, it was a meeting of the minds. And I think kind of went into, uh, Genesis backed into Genesis that way. Okay. So that's, that's interesting because you brought up something that I wanted to mention that you've told me before, which is that in your eyes, the Genesis that you love sort of went away in 1975 when Peter Gabriel left the group. Um, but you kind of discovered them after that. So what was it about, like when you dug back into the music um, that kind of drew that line for you? Was it just the the hard line involvement of Peter Gabriel that once he wasn't in the band, you just didn't have interest? Or was there something that changed musically that you couldn't get into as much after that? Well, Genesis really kind of had it all to me. Like it was a combination of, of Peter Gabriel, um, you know, the singer, but also the lyrics and the songwriter. And then Phil Collins at the time was quite an accomplished and amazing drummer. He was very similar to Bill Bruford, um, another British drummer who played for Yes. And so we and my friend Peter Catoni loved Bill Bruford and Phil Collins as drummers. Um, and so we were kind of geeking out on the personalities in in Genesis. And with uh, with that was also, of course, um, Steve Hackett on guitar, which my friend David was emulating. And I was emulating Tony Banks on keyboards, but also the lyrics of Peter Gabriel. So when they were all together, um, I think it was like our our favorite sort of combo. And, you know, watching a Peter Gabriel concert and being blown away and then going back in time and realizing, oh my God, he's got this amazing history that's even better than him alone, better, way, way better than he is now. It was kind of this just incredible world of discovery, like walking into a cave of wonders. And they, he finished his, he capped his Genesis career with their best album in many ways, A Lamb, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. And he basically wrote every song of that double album and then left. And it was like this incredible work of art, a masterpiece by far. And, you know, I listened to that over and over and over again. That's interesting. So I want to kind of continue down that thread about talking about like the time when um, when Gabriel left, because you mentioned Bill Bruford, um, who actually played with Genesis uh, in 1976. He was the first drummer that kind of filled in for Phil Collins when he went up front to sing. Um, But then also like musically, um, I felt, I always feel like things for the next few albums after that, definitely on a trick of the tale, which was the first album without Peter Gabriel musically there, it was very similar to some of the things on the lamb lies down on Broadway. Um, and if you go back and dig into some of the history of that album, um, the, music on that album was written by the band basically independent of Peter Gabriel because he was traveling back and forth a lot, a lot to um, attend to a, a sick child. And he did, kind of wrote the lyrics and he would swoop in. So that's why I was wondering, like, is it were you just kind of so into the lyrics and the presence of Peter Gabriel that once he was gone, as you said, like the full that full package had been broken apart? Um, I would I'd say there's a little bit of that. Like I was 
you know, if you look at the family tree, um, right at the end of Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, there's a split. And you can go down the Peter Gabriel route, or you can go down the Genesis route. Fortunately, we were able to do both. And I, you know, I agree that Genesis for the first album, Trick of the Tail, was still legit. They were, it was, um, you know, Steve Hackett was still in the band and the music was still Genesis-y enough. Um, but shortly after that, Steve Hackett left and it became a little bit more poppy. And I think Phil Collins started realizing um, as a singer, he should write songs that appealed a little bit more to the younger kind of crowd, not really the the older Genesis. I think he was trying to get a whole new generation involved. And so he was writing more pop type stuff and rapidly was basically saying to me, you know, go listen to someone else. <laughs> and that and that person, that person was Peter Gabriel, who was still producing phenomenal Genesis style music, but Genesis he within an evolution. He he kept evolving and kept increasing his musical prowess to me. And uh and that kind of culminated if if I were to find a peak, it would be on that Genesis uh sorry, Peter Gabriel three. You also mentioned a couple minutes ago the kind of visual presence of seeing Gabriel live. Um I'm guessing back then it was probably difficult to for you guys to retroactively go back and kind of get a sense of that stuff that he was doing with Genesis at that time. Cause we didn't have YouTube and stuff like that to just easily pull up clips and at that there's actually not that much video footage of, of that era. Um, were you guys able to kind of go back eventually and see the things he was doing with like the costumes and the visual presentation and, and did that have any kind of impact on you? Yeah, there's a book and I've since been contacted by the, the author of the book called, I know what I like. And it was a, a fan created Genesis book. And it's sort of like the, the authority of, at the time that, that true fans had because it rapidly went out of print. And my friend Peter Catoni did have it. And we were able to look and see all the cool, amazing things that, that Genesis of, of yesteryear had, had done all the costume changes and the, the personality of rail that Peter Gabriel adopted for the Lamb Lies Down and Broadway um, set. But um, Gabriel did, you know, for each album, the entire stage became like this living, breathing thing. There was a, a period, I think I saw them, again, I think this was in the New York show where, and this is later on, but um, an entire band this guy kind of comes f to the front of the stage and through perspective, um, the band is sort of moving on a, um, on a conveyor belt and the guy way up at the front of the stage opens a briefcase and puts the open briefcase down on the ground. And in the background of the backstage, the band looks as they're playing that they're going into the briefcase and then Peter Gabriel closes the briefcase and the band becomes muffled and he carries it around and shakes it a little bit and the music changes as he's shaking it. And it was just, you know, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, you'll never see anywhere else. And even like later in life when Gabriel had, you know, now he's got a full gray beard and no hair and he's still doing incredible show stuff. And I don't think the Genesis guys 
Uh, I think when Gabriel left, the Genesis guys didn't really strive to do that anymore. Taking it back to uh, the kind of fish-specific stuff, has this material ever come up as, like in your conversations with Trey or your process of crafting any songs, as like a specific influence to Chase? Or do you think it's something that's just sort of inherently there because you were both fans in your in your childhood? In terms of a specific song, uh, there's a lot of things. There's one called called Never um, that uh, anyone who hears it always says that that's a Genesis influenced song, and we've we have a few of those, um, but uh, a specific quote that Trey would always say to me, and you know, it, it's not dissing the dead or anything, but he, um, I think you know, there's a lot of dead fans that are fish fans, or uh, there's a lot of dead fans in the fish fan community. I'll put it that way, and I didn't come up that way. I kind of came up through. Uh, the band Yes and the band Genesis. And I think Trey was sort of, uh, I think he thought that my lyrics were refreshingly more like Peter Gabriel's than they were like Robert Hunter's, if that makes sense, without insulting Robert Hunter's you know, incredible lyrics. I mentioned earlier, obviously most people know uh, Fish played at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Uh, they played um, Watcher of the Skies, which was pretty incredible. And uh, I will go on record as saying I, I, if there's like one one time ever cover that they've done that they should bring back, that's, that's the one for me. Um, and then they did uh, No Reply at All. And then Trey, surprisingly, I think to a lot of people, um, gave the speech where he inducted the band. Um, did you have any anecdotes or uh, anything from that period? Did you talk, kind of talk to him about that? Uh, definitely. I remember, you know, they worked hard as a band to do uh, Watcher of the Skies. They worked very hard and get all the parts and do everything perfectly. And, and I think they pulled that off well. But they were thrown an amazing curveball when Phil Collins uh, declined to sing "No Reply at All," and as easy or as you know as easy as that song might seem to hum along to, it's not easy to sing. And all of a sudden, the singing responsibility fell on Trey, and he was not ready for it, and he definitely didn't want to do it. And he, you know, everyone had just assumed that Phil would sing it and you know he refused and therefore they kind of had to fight their way through that one and it was sort of a shame to me after they did such a good job on Watcher. That's interesting to know that because I, I had never heard that part of the story before and I think you're right it, it was a little bit out of character for them to be playing that song. And I almost I wondered if that was maybe part of the deal. Like, yeah, okay, we'll let you guys play this early song, but you have to play something from the eighties as well, or, you know, some sort of compromise like that. Yeah. I think they just chose it because they figured that, you know, let's, let's honor Phil with a song that he would definitely want to sing. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. And then um, just to wrap it up, uh, lightning round here, uh, favorite Genesis song and favorite Genesis album. Um, well, I, I want to say Firth of Fifth on Selling England by the Pound. Nice. One of my favorites. I learned that whole keyboard part. Oh, uh, wow. I could play, yeah, I could play that at one point. <laughs> that's incredible. That's, uh, yeah. uh, that's a tough part. Yeah, it's great. And it comes back later on synthesizer. It starts yeah. out on piano. And then it's on flute. I mean, it's just, it's an amazing song. And favorite album? I got to give it to The Lamb. It's kind of hard to not say the lamb, isn't it? Right, right. But apart from that, maybe maybe it is uh, 
maybe it is selling England or, you know, gets gets to some of those others. Uh, Foxtrot, I don't know. Yeah, no, I would say the lamb and then uh, selling England. For me, selling England probably has the stronger, like big tracks, like Firth of Fifth and Cinema Show are two of my all-time favorite songs. And then, you, you know, mm. Supper's Ready, which you mm-hmm. kind of mentioned there, on, which is on Foxtrot. But um, I think, so I think the highs in those songs are higher than anything that they achieve on The Lamb, but overall the, the entire package of The Lamb from start to finish is just unbelievable. I'm glad you guys are giving Genesis their due. And I look forward to the yes version of this uh, podcast. Oh, can we sign you up for that too? Because I could talk, talk about that for hours. Yes, please. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, Tom. Thanks, Matt. Beyond the Pond podcast is part of Osiris Media and is co-hosted by David Goldstein and Brian Brinkman and it is edited by Brian Brinkman.